Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science Summer Special. My name is Claire and today I'm going to take you back in time, back to 2019, to some of my favourite Lost in Science stories. And first up, we have Stu to open the show with a little bit of small talk. I mean, some people like talking big. Well, Stu, um, he likes talking small. More specifically about small animals, including everyone's favourite space-travelling water bear. Of course, I'm referring to the tardigrade. I love those little water bears. If you haven't seen one, you know, pause or maybe just look one up while um, while Stu is talking about them because they do look like delightful little vacuum cleaners. After that, we have an encore of Chris's Excellent in-studio experimentation looking at the physics of knots. Not nod, but knots, you know, the knots that tangle your headphones, the ones you get in your hair, those sorts of knots. How do they happen in physics? And if you do happen to have headphones with cords like I do, um, let's be honest, not many people do anymore, but mine always get knotted. I don't know how it happens. I think Chris is going to have a solution for us. Um, hopefully, anyway, let's um, let's hope science has a solution for me. And finally, I'm going to throw back to July last year when we celebrated the Bujibim Cultural Landscape Uh, which is over 6,500 years old, becoming the first site in Australia to get UNESCO World Heritage listing purely as a cultural site of importance for the Gundijimara people. So I thought I'd revisit this because in the last few days, reports have come out from traditional owners that they've actually been new sections of the cultural landscape focusing on the eel harvesting system that have been revealed by the fires. So no one knew they were there before because the undergrowth was so dense, but the fires that swept through the National Park has now revealed some of it. So we're going to visit the Bujibim cultural landscape as well today. So all that this week on Lost in Science's summer special. So on with the show. Everyone's favourite microscopic animal, the tardigrade, was recently a passenger to the moon. Did you guys, you guys heard about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm its number one fan. Yeah, wasn't was... an Israeli, Israeli spacecraft crash landed with a bunch of cargo of tardigrades? Yeah, and human tissue samples for some yeah, reason. Yeah, it was hu- human tissue samples and tardigrades living and, but that, they just, they just on wanted the moon, to, right? Mm. Yeah. They just wanted to land them on the moon. They didn't. That was it. That was, that was the end of the project. And they crashed, so they didn't really... Although they did land, well, I guess. Well, they did land. Yeah. I guess they didn't say exactly how they were going to land. No, I guess... So mission well, accomplished? I'm, sh- I'm sure their mission <laughs> their mission plan probably had a landing... Changed a bit. Yeah. Is there, um, but you know the movie The Martian, where they bring Matt Damon home? We're going to have a dramatic dramatisation where they try to bring the tardigrades home from the... You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have to send, like, a big ship or anything. You'd no. just sort of send a scoop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> scoop them up. 
Um, this, uh, there is a theory that tardigrades may have already made the trip to the moon. Um, the idea is that large enough asteroids hitting the Earth uh, hundreds of millions of years ago may have picked up hitchhikers on their way as they skimmed off the planet's surface and scooped up tiny creatures and taken them to the moon and to other parts of the solar system, potentially. So you never know. But the almost indestructible tardigrade got me thinking, how small are the smallest animals? Because tardigrades are tiny little animals. They've got eight legs and they walk around and eat things. But they're pretty small, but they're giants compared to the really tiny animals because tardigrades are about half a millimetre. So you could see them with a reasonable sort of microscope. The smallest vertebrates are massive compared to that, though. So uh, they're about 10 times that size. So a carp family fish, there's a fish that's in the carp family that's seven millimetres long when it's fully grown. That's quite tiny. And there's a tiny frog from South America that is an average of 7.7 millimetres at full size. My goodness. So the biggest ones are sort of eight and a bit millimetres, but on average they're about 7.7. But to get to really small animals, we have to go to the invertebrate world, which brings us to the arthropods. And arthropods are obviously the animals with exoskeletons. Like insects and spiders and crabs. Insects and arachnids and crustaceans, Mm -hmm. yes, to use their zoological names. Chris just likes calling them all crabs. Crabs. Yeah. Yeah. He's a crab fan. All crabs. (laughs) Now... As far as insects go, the smallest insect is, can you guess what kind of insect it is? Ooh, is it a type of flea? No. A gnat? No. Is it a midgy? No. A gnat? It's a beetle. Of course. Of course it is. Of course, it course is. it's a beetle. Of course it is um, a beetle. There are so many beetles. Yeah, One in four animals is a beetle, yeah, so of course yeah. the yeah, smallest animal is a beetle. more species of beetle than just about everything else put together. So, yeah, a quarter of all animal species, uh, of all described animal species are beetles. So the smallest beetle is only one third of a millimetre in size. So that's smaller, wow. than, the, uh, smaller than the tardigrade. Um, so how, how big is a tardigrade? About half a, half a millimetre. All right. So, so you could see a tardigrade with your eye. You, well, yeah, you could probably make it out, but you might not be able to distinguish it from okay. its surroundings because they're kind of see-through-y, sort of. They don't really have a colour. Um, but the smallest beetle is also the smallest free-living insect. Oh. So that's actually an important thing. As we go down in size from the smallest beetle, which is called Skydacella musawasensis, we get into animals which are not free-living That is, they rely on other creatures to help them get along. Uh, In other words, they are parasites. Ooh. And this parasitic life cycle allows them to get by with fewer functioning body parts, basically. Oh, that's a trick, So they've just left things behind. Well, they've adapted them away so that we don't need legs. Who needs legs? Who needs legs when I've got this whole body that's warm and lovely? Yeah, when I can just suck on this juicy fish (laughs) or Who needs a digestive system when I can, yeah. Yeah, suck on someone else's digestive system. Yeah. Mm, Mm. Charming. But it does allow them to get really small. So these animals are never found on their own. They're always found... Uh, as freeloaders on some kind of host, uh, which uh, gives them a home and usually some kind of food source as well. So within the arthropods, we have a couple of parasitic crustaceans. One is called Stigotantulus stocki, which lives on the outside of tiny shrimp. Wow. So the tiny shrimp are only a couple of millimetres long, and these guys live on those shrimp, on the outside of those shrimp, in in salt and fresh water. Um, They measure about... 0.1 millimetres or 100 micrometres or 100 microns. 
Um, but they are bitten by an even smaller shrimp, which grows to only 85 microns oh. in size. It never emerges from its parent. That's how small it is. It stays inside its parent and starts feeding on the same place that its parent was feeding on. So has it got small children big. inside it? Well, they grow bigger and sort of bust out of the parent what? over time. It's pretty gross. Oh. Sounds like a weird life cycle. It's like Russian dolls that are kind of continually expanding. <laughs> they, can't, they can't get much smaller, but they, sort of, they have a body part, which is like a sack, which expands as it gets full of little baby parasites, which oh, then expand and, yeah, they kind just keep efficient. expanding and busting out of their parents. So that's pretty small for an animal, 85 microns. But let's be honest, not a very exciting life. But it's not the smallest animal science has found. The smallest is something that would probably be hard to recognise as an animal. These tiny shrimp at least have little legs and they look sort of shrimp-like. This is something from the Mixozoa, meaning slime or mucus animals. They're a, a class of cnidarians. Cnidarians. That's so C-N-I-D, isn't it? Yes, C-N-I-D-A. R-I-A-N-S. That's a phylum of animals that includes jellyfish and corals and sea anemones. Uh, and all the hard things to pronounce, yeah, mostly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's just put all these difficult to pronounce yeah. things in the cnidaria. <laughs> so the tiny mixozoa, the whole class doesn't get bigger than 20 microns in size. And the smallest are called mixobolus shekel. Oh, and you brought one in today, Stu. Yeah, can you see it? No, you can't see it because it's only 8.5 microns in size. It's 0.0085 of a millimetre. You would not be able to see that. Even some really good microscopes would not be able to pick that up. Um, So you'd probably have to magnify it hundreds and hundreds of times to be able to see this. But these are not free-living creatures. They're a parasitic animal that live in two hosts throughout their life cycle. So at least they get to see a bit of the world as they pass through life, not like the... uh, the tiny shrimp that never leave their parents. I'm still blown away. They're parasites, but they're parasites of their parent. So no, their parents just nested. die, and they just sort of grow up, and their parents. Their parents are parasitizing something else. Oh, okay. yeah, right, yeah, oh, yeah. right. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, the two hosts that this uh, mixobolus shekel. One is a fish, the northern pike, which swims around you know quite long distances. The other is a kind of moss worm, which is a sea creature which just looks like a little thing of moss that just crawls around and doesn't really go very far. So they sort of transfer back and forth between the two hosts. So it seems like, though, to get really small, this this thing basically looks like uh, a little cross, but it's multicellular. It's just lost nearly all of its uh, animal-like appendages, and it's basically just a tube, feeds at one end, waste comes out at the other, and it's sort of like a cross shape so it can grip onto things. But... Um, it seems like to get really small, animals have to give up their independence to some degree. They're not very motile, these things. But of course, and you know, this is the smallest one we know of, but there may be smaller animals out there. We just haven't really looked closely enough to find them. And if you're looking for sort of parasites, you would have to be looking pretty closely and assume Inside something. that they were there to begin with. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not even going to find them. So keep looking. There might be something even smaller out there, and you can name it after something. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I have a experiment 
to do. A uh, experiment or uh, an, an experiment? experiment. Okay. It's a bit of like bit of like in studio physics. Um, this this one I've been wanting to do for a while. It is actually a bit of an old story, really. Um, old in a couple of different ways. Um, the actual study it's based on dates back to two thousand and seven. So yes, it's pretty old. But also it was it's been quoted a lot when people talk about things like how yeah headphones get tangled in your pocket. And now everything's getting wireless. So I feel that's out of date as well. But um, I don't know. We're going to tackle it anyway. I've still, got, I've still got wired headphones in. Well, they're in my pocket and they're tangled. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah. me yeah. too. Yeah. Actually, well, I have I'll, two pairs and I'll, they normally get tangled together. I was going to ask you to volunteer your, your headphones for the experiment, but maybe we wouldn't do that because that might be noisy. Okay. But maybe we can try it if this doesn't work with the string. Yeah, maybe. Yes, I'll give them the gameway here. Anyway, so yeah, like I said, this dates back to 2007. Um, this was a study by biophysicists Dorian Raymer and Douglas Smith from University of California, San Diego. Now, the story is with this is that uh, Raymer, who was a student, undergrad student at the time, wanted to study knot theory, was interested in the theory of knots. Right. Now, the theory of knots sounds like a kind of one of those jokey things that people... Knot theory. Of, it's, it's, it's a it's, theory. Wait, knot theory? No, it is Are theory. Are you sure it's theory? It's, it's not theory. It's not theory. No, it is theory. I'm sure it's not some sort of cultural studies theory from the 90s? Not. <laughs> Quite possibly. Actually, it dates back to the 19th century, I believe, when uh, Lord Kelvin, who you may have heard of, uh, he has like a unit of temperature named after him. He, uh, he had this theory that atoms were kind of vortex knots, like knots of like a vortex. And so the different kinds of knots would be the different kinds of atoms. And he hoped to find an explanation for the periodic table, the elements, bringing us back to the International yeah. year of the periodic table um, by classifying the different kinds of knots. If only he'd been looking at proteins, he would have been more on the right track. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. Um, proteins and also DNA knots mm. up. Now, um, so back to our Raymer and Smith, and they were actually interested in, in the, um, the DNA of viruses, which are often knotted up. It's not clear why. Um, they're, they're knotted, perhaps, so you can join up to kind of, you know, different segments of DNA. But, um, so, yeah, so Raymond wanted to study knot theory. Smith, who was a supervisor, said, well, how about we do some knot experiments instead? And they're interested in the in the DNA of viruses, but they were kind of um, uh, small and difficult to do experiments on. So they tried string instead because they could just go to the hardware store. Yeah. Which they did. Okay, so what we have here, we've got a kind of an, a replication of their experiment. They're, it's not exactly the same. So they had a piece of string. Um, Claire, I'm going to give you this piece of string. Yeah, I can confirm that Chris is giving me a piece of string. It's like a beigey string. Now, is there, about, nothing, is there nothing up his sleeve as well? Can you check? It's about the length of my arm width, actually. That's very good. Can you just drop it in the box? Um, in any particular fashion? Just, just to kind of randomly drop it in. Randomly drop it in. There you go. Well, actually, in the experiment, in the experiment, I'll do it. I'll do it because you did it wrong. <laughs> in the experiment, <laughs> they dropped it in like this. They just kind of went like that kind of thing. It wasn't random. That was well, the most deliberate thing I've ever seen you do. No. Okay. Well, for me, that's quite deliberate. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, they they popped some string in a box. Now, Claire, I'm going to get to put the lid on this box. So what I want you to do is tumble the box for us. They in the experiment, they did it about ten times around, like once a second. So just get you to tumble that a few times, at least ten times around. Okay. And and so this is their basic experiment. They did it like mechanically. They had like a motorized setup, and they had a special box. I think it was a, a different size to this. Uh, and it's probably just one of those paint shakers from the hardware store <laughs> where they got the string. Possibly. How many times have we done this now? Um, a bit over ten. Okay. So anyway, 
we're going to get the string out of the box now and see whether it's 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 turned into a knot. Okay. Uncle Claire, do you want to try Would you that? like me to open the yeah, box yes, and get please. the string out? So how, do we, how, how do we know it's turned into a knot? How do I get the string out? Just with your fingers. Like that? And just to see, like you see, like whether it's got any knots in it. That one didn't. Okay, <laughs> let's uh, let's try that again. Okay. Because okay, so um, I think you do it maybe again. I'll, maybe I'll turn it is, over ten this times. This is genuine. This is genuine um, science here. So anyway, so what they did, they did this experiment. Um, they did a lot of different experiments on different lengths of string. What they found is that the string they used, when it was less than forty-six centimeters in length, they got very unlikely to get a knot. Um, but then the probability of getting a knot rose very rapidly until the string got to about one hundred and fifty centimeters in length. And then it kind of leveled off. That was kind of the maximum, about 50% chance of getting a knot in the string. Now, this string here is about 150 centimetres in length. So I reckon we've got a 50-50 chance <laughs> of getting uh, a knot in it. So should we try it? Now? Yeah. An extra shake. And if this, doesn't yeah. work, if this doesn't work, I have headphones. Oh, that didn't work again. We're going to go full on. We're going to use the, um, the, the best kind of equipment we have for getting knots in Yeah, things. look, I mean, headphones. there's something about the headphones. They're sort of like some... There's the friction. They're usually the, sort of plasticky yeah, coated the and they have a bit of friction coat, yeah. to them that seems to lend them to being tangled. Yeah, exactly. This is going to... Um, make a noise. Make a noise. Yeah, that's fine. So, so people just... understand we're doing it. So, yeah, like I said, they the way it works, I'll tell you while you're doing that, I'll tell you how it works. Because then they did a model to work out why the knots are forming. And they realised from like, looking at the different kind of knots that formed what was actually going on. And it's kind of the knots form like um, a braid in hair, for instance. So essentially the string or the cord kind of loops around in loops and then the free end will cross over the different loops and sometimes it will cross over in such a way as to form a knot. Mm. And so you get these different kind of braids of knots by it being in the, in the container. Do you reckon that's about enough times? Yeah, it's enough times. All right, see what happens. So knotted. That is quite knotted. Very knotted. That is quite knotted. Yeah, it's extremely knotted. Thank you very much for that, Claire. Um, Of course, the only thing that could get more knotty than a pair of headphones would probably be a slinky, I imagine. But we're not going to go to that level of difficulty. No, you're not using my slinky. No. So anyway, that's the way that that it works. I did this experiment to find out basically how knots form. It sounds kind of like a silly experiment, but it has this work has been cited a few times in work on proteins and DNA. Mm. Um, also, um, medical equipment sometimes there's like kind of long thin bits that can get knotted up. Um, waves. Uh, and recently there was something on vortexes of turbulence using um, this theory to describe that. So perhaps Lord Kelvin had a point about the the vortexes. Anyway, look, it's an interesting idea. As you said, it's kind of important for proteins. Um, proteins form all kinds of shapes. They're like started as a long string of amino acids, and they form all kinds of shapes, and the shapes are really important. And we don't really understand how they form those shapes. Currently, there's a lot of excitement about using, using artificial intelligence to do it, um, and deep learning, that kind of thing. The people who made uh, AlphaGo, which you may have heard of, the artificial intelligence thing that beat the game Go, they have a new program called AlphaFold, which is apparently getting some success with working out how proteins fold up into, into a certain shape. So, yeah, there are different ways being tried, but perhaps some simple physics, some headphone cables and a box can help explain some of these mysteries of chemistry. So wonderful news this week. Australia has a new UNESCO protected world heritage site in southwestern Victoria. It's over 6,600 years old, which is older than the pyramids. 
and it is the only UNESCO site in Australia to be recognised solely for its Indigenous cultural heritage value. Fantastic. So if you haven't heard of the Bajibim site on the land of the Gujimara people before, um, well, uh, start listening up, don't go anywhere, because you're probably going to hear a lot more about it in the coming weeks, months, years, now that it is receiving the recognition internationally that it deserves. Um, now, Bajibim in the Gujimara language means high head, which it is. So it's an extinct volcano. Oh. Yeah. Last time it erupted was about 30,000 years ago. Right. Okay. So a good amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so obviously long before these eel traps were built. That's right. Long yeah. before the eel traps were built. But it is extremely significant that, yeah. that the type of rock there, which is which is basalt, so what that eruption did was create all these lava oh. flows and all these sort of channels and like places around around Bajibin. So um, you've got this uneven sort of basalt ground where, where water can pool and that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. So from these uneven channels and this basalt, the Gujimara people were able to block dam walls and construct uh, stone features across the lava flow. And in doing that, they were able to develop these complex systems of artificial ponds. And these ponds and the channels would hold floodwaters whenever there was a lot of rain. And when there was a lot of rain and you get floodwaters into these places that you didn't normally get uh, water into, it would also direct eels into okay. these spaces. Well, we've talked before on the show about the, the complex life cycle of the eels, how they spawn in the sea and they mature in inland waterways and that kind of stuff and then swim back out. They do, yeah. Yes. They travel thousands of kilometres, don't mm. they? They go all the way up to the Coral Sea to spawn and then the tiny little eels yep. make their way back on their own yep. back to um, their ancestral yeah. yeah, their ancestral um, homes, yeah, um, which is in, which, you know, in this particular instance is in Lake Conda, um, which is in, the, is in Bujibim National Park. So, yeah, so by developing this sort of complex system of these artificial ponds, um, it allowed the Gujimara people to direct the eels into the ponds and they were able to be held there um, for a long for long term and develop into di- different stages of growth. Okay. So you had eels at different stages of growth. Oh, so um, they, wouldn't, they weren't just like trapped there to catch and they were trapped there and... and- farming them. Farmed, yeah, yeah, aquacultured. Yeah, aquacultured, indeed, indeed. There's a word for that, the wet farming mm. that is. <laughs> Fish farming, indeed. So these holding ponds allowed eels to grow in a restricted and protected area and be available to the people who were living close by most of the year. So it provided a food source and an all-important, I guess, protein source to the Gujimara people long term. In addition, there's also lots of these C-shaped basalt block structures close to where the eel trap channels are. Oh, yes. Yeah. So on average, they're around three to four metres and... They represent house foundations. So archaeologists and scientists and Gujimara elders think that as these C-shaped basalt block structures are in sort of like these um, clusters, that they might be clustered into villages. So they might actually be um, 
be housing, okay. permanent housing for where where the farmers, where the fish farmers yeah, it's be there were for living. Long term with your your eels, like um, tending to your eels and. Yeah, you need somewhere to live and you need somewhere that's going to be able to stand up to the elements that southwestern Victoria is going to throw at you. Exactly. Which is quite a lot of elements. That there are. There are at least four of them. There are, there are at least four of them. Indeed. Yeah, what we have is evidence of permanent settlement in the form of villages and this incredible engineering and aquaculture development of natural resources with the eel traps. So radiocarbon dating of tiny charcoal fragments within the sediments has showed that one of the channels, one of the eel channels, was built at least, as I said before, 6,600 years ago, while close by there was a dam wall that was added around 500 years ago. So this means that these eel traps, this, this land has been in constant use for a very long time. Yeah. Are, they, um, is it, are they still functional? Do you know? Do we know? Since European colonisation, that landscape has changed quite a lot. Okay, yeah. So there was a lot of sort of restoration that had to be done on this yeah. land in the last sort of like 30, 40 years to sort of actually bring to light what was underneath yep. and what what that aquacultural engineering looked like, yeah, okay. you know, before colonisation. Yeah, so one channel was built 6,600 years ago while the dam wall was added 500 years ago. So not only does this mean that the budgie beam eel traps are the world's oldest known stonewalled fish trap, um, but also the longest used fish trap um, anywhere in the world, which is quite incredible as well. These large-scale fishing facilities and, you know, the aquacultural pond really challenges many traditional representations of Aboriginal people as simple hunter-gatherers. So the Gujimara people actively changed the way that water flowed and engineered their landscape to increase availability and reliability of eels as a resource and a food source for them long-term. So it is... Um, an incredible accomplishment that after a 17-year campaign by the Gujimara community and archaeologists and scientists and advocates um, that the landmark decision was announced this week and was announced in Azerbaijan. So the community went over to Azerbaijan and, um, and it was announced at UNESCO over there. So it is now under one of the highest levels of protection on the UNESCO list list alongside Kakadu and the Great Barrier Reef and part of our engineering and agricultural or aquacultural history over 6,600 years in the making and a source of pride for all Australians. That's all we have time for on this edition of Lost in Science's Summer Special. Thanks for sticking with us. And wherever you are, I hope you are having a safe summer. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're Lost in Science 1, or you can find us on Facebook, we're Lost in Science on 3CR. 
or uh, you can just tune in again next week for another episode of Lost in Science Summer Special. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.